Good morning. Um, my name is Davis Morgan, um, and it's always a pleasure to be with you in the pulpit here at First Pres. Uh, I've said this before, but it's uh, it's a treat to be a frequent flyer uh, in in this pulpit. Um, we're going to be this morning in First Peter chapter two. Let me invite you to turn there. It's on page 1015 of your pew Bible. Um, while you're finding the passage, uh, let me just say thank you for all the salmon recipes. Um, <laughs> There's been an outpouring uh, since the, the news got out two weeks ago that, um, that that's uh, a struggle for me. So thank you church family for lifting me up and uh, participating in my sanctification. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we're in a series in the book of 1 Peter right now, uh, and we're sort of coming into uh, a, a long section that takes up uh, the second half of chapter 2 into midway through chapter 4. Uh, so, uh, Peter has outlined some of the, the wonders of the gospel, and now he's talking about the implications of that gospel. So, let's, let's look together. Chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verse 13 to the end of the chapter, but I'm actually, for reference and for context, I'm going to start reading at verse 9. Verse 9. This is God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have Received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of the visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. In the sight of God. For to this you have been called. 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. God, our Heavenly Father, we need your word so badly. Even when we don't have much appetite for it, even when we're not longing as we ought to for it, even, Father, when we're not sure if it's good for us, Lord God, your word is food. I pray that as we consider a hard passage, a passage with a lot of things that cause our eyebrows to go up and cause questions and bring up um, painful things, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us in this. Pray that you would hide me behind the cross that whatever is true would come as from you and whatever is false would be, would be forgotten and fall to the ground. Lord Jesus, would you hide me behind the cross so that we would see Christ alone. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure uh, if in the 21st century this is going to be accessible to everyone, but I don't know when the last time you watched a DVD was. Uh, or when the last time maybe you saw one of the screensavers from a DVD. Uh, there's a bit in the office about this once where you were these screensavers where there, there's a ping pong ball and it's bouncing around the edges of the screen. And, and every time it goes from one angle to the next, it, it looks every time like it's about to go right into the corner. And for some reason, it never does. And, and for some reason, you know, we get fixated on this, this little ping pong ball that, why won't it fit? Why won't it go where we want it to? It's something that causes a lot of tension and something that, that maybe uh, causes some distraction for us. Look, there's something going on in this passage that is similar to that. Part of why we started with verse 9 is we need, friends, to feel the tension of 1 Peter chapter 2. We need to feel the apparent paradox between, on the one hand, Peter has just said these amazing things about who you are and what is true of you in Christ Jesus. That you are a royal priesthood. That you're a holy nation. That you exist to declare the excellencies and the praises of God who has brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And yet... 
your sojourners, your exiles, and you live in a place that is often still dark. And you live in a place that often creates tension. It's the tension that all Christians live in between the already of the kingdom of God and the not yet. That that Jesus' victory has already come. The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus says. And yet, we do not see everything in subjection to him yet, as Hebrews 2 tells us. There's an already and a not yet tension. And that's where we live our lives. And that's what Peter is speaking into. And what I want you to see this morning, friends, is, is bringing to bear this royal priesthood, this new status... In the already but the not yet involves the gospel transforming everything. The gospel transforms everything for us, even here and now. And so we're going to consider this morning how the gospel transforms submission, how it transforms service, and how it transforms suffering. Gospel transforms submission, service, and suffering. Okay. The gospel transforms submission. Now, saying that word in this setting is like just taking the pen out of a grenade and just lobbing it into the middle of the room, isn't it? Because that is a word that we're not sure how we feel about. I work on a college campus, and and I can tell you that most people on a college campus are very sure what they think about that word. But I want you to see, actually, friends, even the grammar of verse 13, when it says, uh, uh, subject yourself, or if you have an NIV, it may say, submit yourself. The, the translators are trying to massage out this interesting voicing in Greek that actually implies a fundamental freedom on the part of the one submitting. The, the, the language is almost like, voluntarily submit yourself. In other words, for the Christian, we're free in Christ, as he says in verse 16, but the model is don't use that freedom any way that you want. You're now called to choose to obey human authorities. We think about the fact that some of these authorities would have raised eyebrows to these Christians. You're telling me to honor Caesar? To obey his governors? If you know anything about the history of Roman rule in first century Judea and surrounding areas, that's a tall order. Honor the emperor? Peter says, yes. Why? Because now you serve God. That's what Bob Dylan told us. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And this submission, this voluntary, free choice to obey for Christians is bowing the knee to appropriate human institutions in order that we might bow the knee to God himself. It's what the Apostle Paul says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. That's Romans chapter 13. Now, 
here's the question. Was Corey Ten Boom bringing judgment on herself by disobeying the Nazis and hiding Jews in her home? Was the Underground Railroad in rebellion against God? Were the Founding Fathers rebelling against God by declaring independence from British colonial rule? I don't think so. And I don't think Peter is saying so. Uh, We've got to understand what Peter is doing here. Peter is not, in, in these verses, giving us a thoroughgoing, complete political philosophy. What he's doing is he's speaking to the first century church who exists within the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And specifically, he's speaking to Christians uh, who are being perceived increasingly negatively by the outside world. But we we know that Peter is not saying never disobey civil authorities because Acts chapter 5, we see Peter himself do that and say we must disobey humans so that we can obey God. So Peter, what he's thinking about here, we see it in verse 15. This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Your translation may say uh, silence the foolish talk. In other words, Peter's thinking about false accusations, false uh, understandings that are coming against Christians at this time. Christians refuse to worship Caesar. In fact, they refuse to worship any of the Roman pantheon of gods. Uh, Christians' uh, new way of living was disruptive to society in many ways. Christians were viewed as often conspiratorial. What do they do at these secret meetings? Uh, They were viewed as anti-family, believe it or not. They were viewed as atheistic. Christians were accused, actually, of cannibalism, incest and infanticide that's what that's what people thought christianity was so peter's thinking of these false accusations and maybe you've had someone make false accusations about you or misunderstand you peter is thinking of you and he's writing to a group that has been misunderstood and lied about and he's saying what I want for you is I want you to live out the Christian life in such a way that it becomes clear that these accusations are false. I want you to embody Christian virtue in such a way that there's no question of these accusations being true. Stephen Hawking tells a story in his book A Brief History of Time uh, of an astronomer Uh, who, after giving a lecture on cosmology and the structure of the solar system, was accosted by an elderly lady in in the building. Here's what she said. Your theory about the sun being the center of the solar system and the earth being a ball which rotates around it has a very convincing ring to it, but it's absolutely wrong. I've got a better theory, she says. What is that, madam? That we live on a crust of earth which is on the back of a giant turtle. That's a strange thing to say. If your theory is correct, madam, what does this turtle stand on? You're a very clever young man, she says, but I have an answer, and it's this. The first turtle stands on the back of a second, far larger turtle. The professor patiently replies, But what does the second turtle stand on? The old lady, it says, 
crowed triumphantly and said, It's no use, young man. It's turtles all the way down. Look, sometimes you can't control what people say. But what if, instead of needing to argue, we live our lives in such a way that when someone makes accusations against you, everyone will know that they're false? What if your life has so embodied the truth of the gospel that false accusations sound as ridiculous as turtles all the way down? That's what Peter means by submission here. The gospel transforms submission. The gospel also transforms service, and let's call it what it is, slavery, in this passage. What is translated uh, servants is speaking to Roman slaves. Now, if the idea of submission was a grenade, verses 18 to 20 are a crate of dynamite, aren't they? Uh, We might even ask, should we even be reading this? What could we possibly get from these verses other than offended? I think it's important to read this and wrestle with this because, again, I serve on a college campus, and this issue is probably the number one defeater of faith in the 21st century for high school, college, young adult, for that age group. Isn't Christianity just a white man's religion? Isn't it just a tool of oppression? Doesn't the Bible approve of slavery? It's important to ask this, so let's ask it. Obviously, in our context, and we need, we need to own this, American slavery is what we imagine when we read this passage in the Bible. And sadly, in our nation's history, friends, professing Christians were guilty at times of using passages like this one to give biblical support to the American slave system. And if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, please hear this. American slavery was absolutely indefensible, and attempts to defend it from Scripture were and are wrong. Wrong morally and wrong textually. Based on the Old and New Testament, both in view of this specific text and the overarching theme of Scripture. Please hear me on this. The Bible does not support slavery. It condemns it. Now we can ask, doesn't the Old Testament law support slavery? Not exactly. First, let's remember, the Old Testament law, if we're we're thinking of the Mosaic law code, is God regulating an imperfect society. Uh, Jesus speaks to this himself in the Gospels uh, when he's asked about divorce. Because the Mosaic law regulates divorce, but Jesus explicitly says that is because of the hardness of human hearts. But that in the beginning, meaning in the garden, from the beginning, it was not so. There was no need for these laws at that time. So the Mosaic law regulates something that God recognizes as against his creational design. And second, when you dive into the weeds of of, of what actually the Old Testament permits and what it regulates, uh, it's very difficult to make a case for anything like chattel slavery. Uh, And 
I'm not going to bog us down here. Uh, there's a lot. Of, I would I would recommend uh, Paul Copan, Peter Williams, uh, Gavin Ortland has a very brief, uh, accessible article on the Gospel Coalition. That's a good introduction to this. If that's something that you want to dive into, but one scholar actually says this, that if Bible-believing Southerners in the 19th century and 18th century had simply enforced the Mosaic law, the African slave trade would have never happened. Okay. That's a huge issue. We're not going to get any farther in the weeds on that. But here's another problem. Is if... If we're going to say that this issue is a defeater to Christianity, if you're going to say, based on the immorality of slavery, I can't believe in the God of the Bible. Well, well, let me ask you this. What, on what basis do you condemn slavery? If uh, Sam Harris, for example, and other new atheist thinkers have famously accused the God of the Bible of approving of slavery, which they say is horribly evil and immoral, But on what basis do you call anything moral or immoral? On what basis do you say something is evil? If you throw out belief in a creator, if you throw out belief in God, then how do you establish any kind of moral absolutes? And so here's the question is, is slavery evil? Or is it something our culture simply disapproves of? I would argue Christianity has a basis to say it is evil, not just now, but always. That actually the atheist has to borrow the Christian worldview in order to say that. What's the basis for saying that this is wrong? It's that the Bible teaches that human beings are made in the image of God. That's not something you get outside of Judeo-Christian worldview. Humans are made in the image of God, according to Scripture. By contrast, slavery in Rome and in America denied the basic personhood of the slave and treated them as property. The Bible teaches that God created human beings equal and free, not enslaved. By contrast, both in Rome and in America, defenders of slavery argue that some people, even some ethnic groups, were simply inferior, designed to be slaves. That's something that both the Old Testament and the New Testament flatly contradict. We could dig into this more and talk about the American slave system was built on a system of kidnapping, which is a capital offense in the Old Testament. It's also something that Paul in 1 Timothy explicitly condemns and says it is contrary to the gospel. And we won't even get into the book of Philemon right now. But I would recommend this afternoon, if you're wondering about this, read Philemon and see how the Apostle Paul sets the trajectory for how slavery will be handled in the New Testament society, in Christian society. In fact, in the first century, friends, slaves flocked to Christianity. Why? Because Christianity treated slaves as people with dignity. When we come to these verses in 1 Peter, when we come to verse 18, one thing that should catch our attention, friends, is the fact that Peter addresses slaves directly. He speaks to them, which means that in the worship service of the church, these slaves who are in the room because slaves are converting and they're coming to worship, they would have been addressed directly in the worship service. 
Notice also that while Peter doesn't openly attack the institution of slavery, he undercuts it. He quickly acknowledges the reality of unjust treatment of slaves, and he infuses that suffering with honor. Twice he says, it is a gracious thing when you suffer unjustly as a slave, meaning it is something that is commendable in God's eyes, something that God honors, which means that God sees it and he's not indifferent to it. That he sees the wickedness, he sees the injustice, he sees oppression, and he cares. Just like he told Moses in the book of Exodus when he appeared to him in the burning bush and said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, and I will come and I will rescue them. Christianity appeals to these slaves because it treats them with dignity even while recognizing the brokenness of the system in which they find themselves. Peter actually compares them to Jesus himself. Can you imagine a more dramatic, dignifying way of honoring someone than to compare them to the founder of your faith? To compare them to the Son of God? I saw a clip... Uh, from an episode of Doctor Who. Uh, I'm not a Doctor Who, I've never watched it, but I think it's about time travel. Um, And in this particular clip, uh, the characters have gone back in time and they've met Vincent Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh, famous painter, very unsuccessful in his life and yet world famous after his death for his paintings. And in this clip, they actually take Vincent van Gogh to Paris in the present day and take him to the van Gogh exhibit in an art museum. And Vincent van Gogh walks into this room and sees all these crowds of people looking at his paintings. Paintings that he couldn't sell in his life. And they, they talk to the curator of the museum and ask, where do you think Vincent van Gogh rates in the history of art? And he pauses and he says, Vincent van Gogh is the finest painter of them all. And he, he proceeds to gush over how influential, how, how majestically skilled van Gogh was. And, and the camera pans to Vincent van Gogh, who just begins trembling and weeping as this affirmation, this dignity that he never experienced in life, begins to flood over him. See, what the gospel does in this passage is it speaks to people who have been dehumanized, who have been devalued, who have been treated as property, and it treats them as important and gives them the dignity and the honor that they lack outside of the church and outside of the kingdom of God. The gospel transforms service. That doesn't resolve every tension. But I think it helps us see how the gospel transforms things. Now, lastly, the gospel transforms our suffering. There's a bit of a rhetorical shift here in verse 21 where I think Peter, it's safe to say, is is now talking to everyone. Uh, Slaves are still especially in view, but this applies to all Christians because all Christians suffer. 
generally and specifically unjustly suffer for their faith. He's saying, look, you are going to suffer unjustly in the Christian life, sometimes because you're a Christian, and sometimes simply because this world is broken and full of sin. Because we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. And Peter acknowledges this, and he says, that's exactly what Jesus called you to. To this you were called. Look, friends, I, I know we don't do much of this necessarily, but you know, the, the, the sort of cultural and religious trend of, of, of putting a cross on a necklace and, and maybe... Do you realize we're putting torture on ourselves? This is what it means. It's what Bonhoeffer said. Jesus bids you come and die. To this you've been called. To suffer as Christ suffered. To follow in his footsteps. One scholar puts it this way. That in in Christ you have been given the gift of faith. But also the gift of being mistreated. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 3, that that he longs to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, and to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering, to be made like him in his death. Acts chapter 5, the apostles rejoice that they're counted, quote, worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. This is what we're called to, friends. You see, it's one thing for us to read Romans 8 and agree that, yes, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us. Not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sword. No, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. But the truth of that, you taste the truth of that differently when you are suffering. See, Peter... As he, as he picks up the language of Isaiah 53 of Jesus, that, that, that there was no sin found in him, there was no deceit, that, uh, that he did not revile when he was reviled, he did not threaten, he entrusted himself to God, he entrusted himself to the justice of God. Peter's picking up this language and showing us that, that, that this is what we're called to as well. Remember, we read all the way back at verse 12, that the goal for which we are embodying Christian virtue is so that those who mistreat you may come to faith. The goal for you is the salvation of your enemy. That's what Jesus did. By his wounds, you are healed. That's the DNA of Christianity. It's true of of Joseph all the way back in Genesis that his brothers sell him into slavery and then by the end of the story, he saves his brothers and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That many might be saved. It's true of Jesus. It's true of us. The gospel transforms your suffering. Both by richly giving you communion with Jesus and also by making it effective ministry for the sake of others. Many of you know the name Ruby Bridges. And you probably have seen the famous painting by Norman Rockwell of six-year-old Ruby Bridges, a little African-American girl being escorted to school by a team of U.S. Marshals. 
into the first integrated elementary school in New Orleans in 1960. Every day, Ruby Bridges, six years old, marched into school with a crowd hurling insults at her, with U.S. Marshals having to escort her in, where only one teacher was willing to teach this girl. At one point, a child psychologist began counseling Ruby through this process, and one day as Ruby made her way into school, she paused. She never paused, and she looked up at the crowds, which she never did, and she said something, and then she walked on into school. Later on, the psychologist asked her, Ruby, what did you say to them? Did you finally get mad at them? And she said, no, I, I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. You see, my parents taught me to pray for my enemies. So I pray for them every day in the car. But today I forgot, so I stopped and prayed for them. He said, what did you pray? Here's what she told him. I prayed, please, God, forgive these people. Because even if they say these bad things, they don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Gospel transforms our suffering. Let's pray. Lord God, as we've waded into very difficult waters in this passage, I pray that your Holy Spirit would would renovate our hearts, would perfect whatever is lacking in what we've heard or what we've said this morning. Lord Jesus, help us to see how the gospel transforms everything. Help us to submit to human authorities as to you so that we might serve you, so that we might bow the knee to our Father. Help us to love you, to follow you, to fellowship with you in suffering. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.